Thank you all for, for being here on this beautiful Sunday. The losing of an hour's sleep is not evident in your faces, and I hope it's not in mine. Uh, prayer and caffeine go a long way, and uh, I'm grateful for both of those things. Our scripture lesson for today, our, it is a gospel lesson, it's from John's Gospel. Chapter 19, beginning with verse 26. And I would ask you to stand as you are able for the reading of the Holy Gospel. John 19, 26, and 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here's your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here's your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. The long and winding Lenten road stretches out before us as we continue our walk of faith. It's not a stroll for there's too much at stake. And it's not a run for we might run past something important. But a deliberate walk, aware of the roadside scenery, aware of the other pilgrims who have joined us on the journey. Along the way to the cross. Anne Weems is my favorite contemporary poet. And she describes it like this. She said the way to Jerusalem looks suspiciously like Highway 40. And the pilgrims look suspiciously like you and me. I expected the road to Jerusalem to be crowded with holy people. Clerics and saints. People who have kindness wrinkled in their faces and comfort lingering in their voices. But this is more like rush hour. Horns blowing, people pushing, voices cursing. This is not what I envisioned. Oh God, I've only begun and already I feel I've lost my way. Surely this is not the road and surely these are not the ones to travel with me. This Lenten journey calls for a holy retreat, for reflection for repentance. Instead of holiness, the highway is crammed with the cacophony of chaos. Is there no back road to Jerusalem? No quiet path where angels tend to weary travelers? No sanctuary from the noise of the world? Just this. Can this hectic highway be the highway to heaven? For mile markers along this sometimes weary road, we have chosen the seven last words or seven last phrases of Jesus spoken from the only earthly throne that he ever occupied, the cross. On Ash Wednesday, we passed that first mile marker. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I've always heard that if someone is caught in a wrongful act, that ignorance is no excuse. Pleading ignorance will not get you away from the consequences 
of breaking that law. Maybe from his painful perch, Jesus had a different perspective. Who are the them that Jesus was referring to? The whole nation of Israel? The Jewish religious authorities? The Romans from the emperor to the governor in Palestine, Pontius Pilate? To the soldiers on the Friday morning death detail? Or was he referring to all who have sinned? All who have fallen short of the glory of God? All of us? Last Sunday we passed mile marker number two. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Those who are being executed on either side of him were where they were because of the choices they had made. But isn't that the reason that Jesus was there as well? One of the dying men cursed Jesus and questioned his ability to deliver us from evil. The other condemned prisoner sought to silence his colleague. And when he asked Jesus to remember me, which is another way of saying, Lord, have mercy. And Jesus did because that's who he was and who he is. Today we're rapidly approaching mile marker number three. We read it just a moment ago, a description of it. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, woman, here's your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. One contemporary biblical scholar who has influenced my thinking uh, along these lines and some of the things I want to say next is Dr. Jim Fleming and some of you have met him and some of you are familiar with the Biblical History Center in LaGrange that was in Jerusalem at one time in a series of lectures at Lake Junaluska not too long ago Dr. Fleming was discussing an issue that I believe is very relevant to this third word that is spoken from the cross this third phrase and he had this to say, some of his thoughts, and I'll paraphrase. He said, if Mary had children other than Jesus, Jesus' request on the cross to a non-relative, his beloved disciple, to take care of his mother, would not have made sense to anyone in the first century. His request from the cross, it just didn't figure. If Mary had children other than Jesus, then wouldn't They have been the ones to take care of mama. He said in Catholic tradition and some Eastern traditions, for theological reasons, it's very important that Jesus was Mary's only son, only child. It could have been that Joseph, probably an older man, had previously been married and brought children into this marriage, this relationship with Mary when he married her. It could have been that Jesus could have had half-brothers. They had a different mother than Jesus, and they would not have felt any legal responsibility and maybe no moral or ethical responsibility either to their father's second wife. It's unlikely that since he asked a non-family member 
to take care of his mother, it's unlikely that he had any brothers. In first century culture, it was unheard of for a non-family member, if there were any children, for a non-family member to be asked to take care of one's mother. The children would not have allowed it. That's our job, they would have said. That's our privilege. That's our responsibility. The word brothers was translated literally as brothers, and perhaps a more accurate translation might have been relatives. There's only one Hebrew word to say relatives, and that's the masculine plural of brothers. The Hebrew word brothers means brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, cousins, and all those other folk. The translation of the word to the English word brother is very specific, and some would say too specific. The Catholic Bible says, and his brothers came to him, though many Catholics are raised to believe that Jesus had no brothers. They know the word means relatives. James, the relative of Jesus, may not have been a direct brother, may have been an uncle or a cousin. Now, given the context, Jesus on the cross, dying and given Jesus' words to the beloved disciple, and tradition tells us that the beloved disciple was John and to his mother. And given the conversation about who is related to Jesus, two questions come to my mind that I want us to think about for just a little bit. Number one, who can be a blood relative of Jesus? Maybe you've heard that expression, so-and-so is my blood relative. And what does that mean? There are some passages of scripture that might pry open that door a little bit for us as we take a closer look. John six fifty six: those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Acts twenty twenty eight: keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own son. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? And then 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sin. Who can be a blood relative of Jesus? Anyone who responds to the invitation to become a part of his family. Anyone who has experienced his loving forgiveness that he offers, anyone who chooses to take his or her place at his table. In her commentary on John's Gospel, Gail O'Day says that the third word from the cross symbolizes the beginning of the creation of the new family of God. I'd not thought about it that way. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Believers were promised a future as children of God. And in response to Jesus' words, the beloved disciple takes Jesus' mother Mary to his own home. Tradition states that the beloved disciple, also known as John, lived in Ephesus and that John and Mary, the mother of Jesus, are buried there in Ephesus. And O'Day also states in regard to verses 26 and 27, it's possible to interpret Jesus' mother as representing the whole sweep of Jesus' incarnate ministry from beginning to end. And those 
represented by John were all of those for whom Jesus had given his life. And the gospel writer points to Jesus' death as the link between the past of Jesus' ministry and the future of Jesus' ministry that continues to this day. The movement of that ministry in the future represented by John. Now then, what does it mean to live as a blood relative of Jesus? To be part of the family, the church. We will consider some implications. But when we're thinking about who is a blood relative, uh, I was talking with someone about this passage whose advice I respect. And she said, what about Ancestry.com? Sending in some DNA. Can we find out that way if we're a blood relative of Jesus? Well, that's a thought. There's a thought. What does it mean to be a blood relative of, of this Jesus who lived and died and rose again? I think sometimes it means acknowledging, admitting, confessing is a better church word, that the problem, whatever the problem is at the moment, that the problem is not just with them, but with us. Whether it's a personal problem or a family problem or a work problem or a church problem as we try to figure out what our future looks like. Is the problem always with them? Or is it sometimes with us? And that made me think of a story. This may not seem to fit exactly, but it, it made me think about this story anyway about an elderly gentleman who was way up in his 90s and... Uh, He feared his wife was losing her hearing, so he called the doctor one day to make an appointment to have his wife's hearing checked. The doctor made an appointment for hearing test in two weeks, and he said, meanwhile, there's a simple informal test that you can do at home to find out exactly how bad the problem is. What is the scope of her hearing problem? Here's what you do, said the doctor. Start out at about 40 feet away from her and say something to her and see if she responds. And if she doesn't, move to about 30 feet away and say something and see if she responds. And then if she doesn't hear, you'll move to about 20 feet away and see if she'll say anything. If she doesn't, move to about 10 feet away. And if she still doesn't respond, then stand right beside her and see if she can hear you. So that evening, his wife was in the kitchen cooking dinner. He was in the living room. He figured, well, this is about 40 feet away. So he called out, honey, what's for dinner? And no response. So he moved to the other side of the living room, about 30 feet away from her. Honey, what's for dinner? No response. And so he moved into the dining room about 20 feet away. And honey, what's for dinner? Still no response. And then he moved to the kitchen door. And honey, what's for dinner? Still no response. So he went to the kitchen. He stood right beside her. He said, honey, what's for dinner? And she said, for the fifth time, Earl, chicken. It's easy. It's easy to think the problem's with someone else. But relatives of Jesus, sometimes we look in the mirror and we see where the, where the real problem is. What does it mean to be a blood relative of Jesus? Do we ever catch ourselves in our own human families talking with one sibling about the antics of another sibling? Don't tell me you've never done that. If you've got... Sisters and brothers, I know I'm guilty. 
Sometimes we get folks down in the country because we don't like what they've done, but we would do anything to stand up for them and to help them and to carry them along the way because they're family. We're concerned about their well-being. Jesus, even on the cross, even in his pain and difficulty, the struggle beyond our imagination, was thinking about his mother. And ask John, the beloved disciple, please, John, take care of mama. Blood relatives of Jesus take care of one another. Not ignoring our own personal needs, but oftentimes putting the needs of others in the family and in the world that God loved, putting those needs above our own. That's what blood relatives do. What does it mean to be a blood relative of Jesus, a part of God's family? It means having a common vision for our future, even if we sometimes disagree about how we're going to get there. A common vision keeps us pointed in the same direction instead of folks scurrying off here, there, and everywhere with their own agendas. It keeps us working together even when our personal agendas sometimes go unfulfilled and we don't always get our way. What does it mean to be a blood relative of Jesus? It means that we value the significance of every person even if, even if they have nothing we need, even if they have nothing to offer us, or so we think, sometimes it's just such folks that Jesus chooses to reveal himself through. Lord, when did we see you hungry or sick or alone? or in prison, or naked. I heard, and it's been a few years, but it's one of those things when I heard it, it just sort of won't go away. I don't even remember exactly who I was listening to or what the radio station was, but it was a talk show host. And I heard him say, he was talking about the island nation of Haiti, and it had been through a tragedy as often it seems to go through. And he asked the questions, why should we be concerned about them? What do they have to offer us? How do you think a blood relative of Jesus ought to answer that question? What does it mean to be a blood relative of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Everything, that's all, just everything. Amen.